0: Our text this morning is Acts chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 27. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. The topic, Governor Felix seems to be convicted by Paul's preaching but tells him to go away until he has a more convenient time to listen. We're calling our study An Inconvenient Truth. You guys are more politically astute, I guess, than first service. (laughs) I had to pause and explain it, first service. Okay, verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders, and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying... Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoings in me while I stood before their council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, He adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, "'Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you.'" Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Let's pray together. Father, all the Scripture is for our learning and instruction, even these real historical narratives, Lord, And so I pray that you would help us to glean from this story in the life of the Apostle Paul those things which are helpful and needful, those things which will encourage our walk with you and draw us closer to your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, Amen. All roads lead to Rome, and in fact, they once did. The road system of the ancient Romans was an engineering marvel with over 50,000 miles of pavement. Some of the roads remain to this day. You may remember from your study of history the most famous of the Roman roads, the Via Appia, which translates into English as the Appian Way. It's that word way that we're interested in this morning. The early Christians we're studying in the book of Acts were called the Way. In an empire that was all about roads, where all roads led to Rome, the Christians spoke about the road or the way to heaven. It was a natural metaphor that the people could understand. I imagine them sharing with people, and as people were trying to grasp biblical Christianity, they would say, well, it's like the road system. All roads lead to Rome. There's a road that leads to heaven, and then there is a broad way that leads to destruction, and it's something that you can get your hands around. Now, we encounter this title, The Way, twice in our reading of chapter 24, once in Paul's defense against his accusers and again in his private talks with Governor Felix. It's as if Paul, while on the way, stopped to give directions. And that's a good way to understand our encounters with people. We're on the way and they need directions. I'll thus organize my thoughts about chapter 24 around two points. Number one, tell the self-righteous people you encounter along the way that they've stopped short of the resurrection. And number two, Tell the unrighteous people you encounter along the way that they have stopped short of righteousness. First of all, we're going to look at verses 1 through 21. Tell the self-righteous people you encounter along the way that they've stopped short of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul was taken into protective custody in Jerusalem after almost being torn apart limb from limb by an angry Jewish mob. After a plot to assassinate him was discovered, he was moved under heavy guard from Jerusalem to Caesarea and handed over to Governor Felix. The Romans were still trying to find out what it is he had done. And so a contingent of Jews from Jerusalem was summoned to accuse Paul in front of the governor. And here they come giving their uh, statement. And so in verse 1, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul, and when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, Tertullus was a hired attorney, and he began his prosecution by flattering the governor, and and none of this was true. Uh, The Jews had none of these feelings about Felix. They hated Felix for good reason, Uh, and, and so this is just pure, unadulterated flattery. We ought to be encouraging to one another. Isn't it discouraging enough out there? I mean, just going to work, going to school, being around unbelievers, your life is falling apart half of the time. It's discouraging. And, and, and we need that encouragement that comes from the body of Christ. Think about what you're saying to people before you say it. People laugh at me sometimes. I mean, I'm not this, you know, the sharpest tool in, the, in, in your toolbox, you know, kind of a thing. But a lot of times I'll start to say something and I'll say, oh, I can't say that. And then it freaks people out. Well, I want to know what you were going to say. I go, no, you don't. <laughs> Let's just change the subject. You know, sometimes you just, the things, and then other times I do say things and I wish I hadn't said them. And so just try to be encouraging, no flattery. We don't need flattery to want to engage in flattery. Don't, you know, embellish the truth. But be encouraging one to another. Life is hard enough without being drugged down by other Christians. In verse 4, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. We have found this man a plague, creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him in, uh, and out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain that all these things of which we accuse him are true. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, if you've been with us for the previous studies, you see how the lawyer spun the truth to fit his accusations. For example, uh, they, he says, we seized him and we're going to judge him according to our law. They were killing him. They were beating him to death, not according to their law. And it wasn't Lysias who came with violence against them and took Paul, as if they were going to resolve it quietly. Lyceus saved Paul's life, and so it's it's amazing to me. I love you know this time of year uh, when you can you know you turn on Fox News and you can see two sides of every issue. And, and, you know, hardly anybody is just talking, telling the truth. It's like, this happened, what's your spin on it? What's your spin on it? And people just will not tell the truth. They all have a spin that they want to put on something. And so, uh, Tertullus, he had his Jewish spin. You know, we had everything under control, and, you know, you're a great guy, and if you would have just left us alone, everything would have been fine. Yeah, Paul would be dead. would be the fulfillment of that famous campaign, Paul is dead. But anyway... All right, it's not funny, but, you know, you could laugh for my sake. Remember I said, be encouraging. Uh, (laughs) Paul was accused of three things. I always want to make sure I have the right number of fingers. He was accused of creating dissension among the Jews against the government. He was accused of belonging to an unlawful religious sect of the Nazarenes. And he was accused of profaning the temple. Now, there's an expression, the man who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer. But when you're accused for being a Christian, you're not really the one that's on trial. Jesus is on trial. Jesus said they hate you. It's because they hated me. And so when you're being persecuted, when you're on trial, as it were, for being a Christian, you're not really the one that stands accused. You're there to give testimony. You're a witness because behind it is a hatred of Jesus Christ. To the extent you want to think of yourself as accused, you already have an attorney Jesus Christ, we're told in the uh, epistles of John, is our advocate. He is our defense attorney. Any accusation that's hurled against you, he is capable of dealing with it. Now, verse 10 reads like this. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself." Now, instead of beginning with flattery, Paul stated a fact that was in his favor. He says, I don't mind talking to you myself because you know a great deal about Jewish affairs. Paul, or Felix had judged the uh, Jews for a long time. Prior to being in Caesarea, I'm told by historians, he was in Samaria, so he would know a lot about Jew-Samaritan, Jew-Gentile relations. And Paul would be able to show him in just a few words that this was an internal Jewish matter that had nothing to do with the Roman government. As to the charge he was causing dissent, Paul said in verse 11, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Paul says, the charge was false, and besides, I wasn't in Jerusalem long enough to start any kind of a decent rebellion. It it, it would take more than the 12 days that I had uh, in order to really stir up the crowds, and so that was completely false. As to the charge, he belonged to an unlawful sect, Paul said in verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, this actually was a serious charge because Rome only recognized certain religions, and uh, if Paul was the leader or belonged to an unrecognized religion, this uh, would be illegal. And so he says... uh, I'm not part of an offshoot of Judaism, a sect of the Nazarenes. He said the way is the foundation and the fulfillment of Judaism. It's nothing new. It was God's plan from the beginning. As to the charge, he had profaned the temple, Paul said in verse 16... This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. Paul's whole purpose in going to Jerusalem was to deliver a financial gift to the Jews. His whole purpose for being in the temple was to complete a vow according to the law of Moses. He was purified. Everything he did was according to Jewish custom and law. While he was there, he respected all of that. He was guilty of none of these charges. So Paul concluded by saying in verse 19, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Now, what Paul is getting at here, just like in our system of justice, you have a right to face your accuser. And so Paul is saying, the charges that are leveled against me, there aren't any witnesses here. There is no testimony. These are just accusations from people who weren't there. So if if these things are true, where are my accusers? And then he said, these guys that are here, ask them if I did anything wrong when they questioned me in their assembly. I didn't. And so Paul is... Uh, really a lot smarter than their attorney. No witnesses were presented, thus there was no evidence, only accusations. Then Paul couldn't help himself. He injects the gospel in verse 21, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. And so what Paul is doing is telling Felix, the only reason I'm here is because I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he's beginning to give a witness and a testimony to the governor. The real issue here is Paul's belief that Jesus Christ of Nazareth had risen from the dead and was the promised and prophesied Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. The Jews accusing him were looking for their Messiah, but they rejected the claims that it was Jesus Christ. Biblical Christianity is not new. I tell you this um, every few weeks, but it's, it's a very important point, I believe. We encounter it many times in our text. And even as Christians, we sometimes forget this because we're dealing with people in the world uh, and even some Christians or who profess to be Christians who think of biblical Christianity as a world religion. They think of it as one of the great world religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Uh, and, and they think that biblical Christianity began sometime in the first century, either with Jesus himself or with his followers who wanted to found a new religion. And nothing could be farther from the truth or further from the truth, depending your grammar. I think it's further, actually, but I, I never I didn't pass English. Uh, anyway... Uh, But I did graduate from the University of California somehow. Anyway, uh, biblical Christianity begins and is founded by God in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. It was first explained in the Garden of Eden in response to Adam and Eve's sin. God promised to send a Savior. He promised to come himself and be the substitute and sacrifice for sin for the entire human race. Later on, as the scriptures unfold, you see that the nation God would come through was Israel. It was this way that Paul was on. It was God's way of salvation from eternity past leading to eternity future. The Jews were the ones at fault. They stopped short of the resurrection of their promised Messiah. Paul and the Jews were all on the way. Paul receives Christ as the Messiah and continues on the way. The Jews stop short. First century Jews were instead trusting in their own self-righteousness to get them into heaven. They believed that by keeping God's law perfectly, they would earn eternal life. The problem with that is that no one can ever keep God's law perfectly. All you have to do is break one law and you're guilty of the whole law. It's an illustration, again, that I use often, but I like it. If I'm out here, the other day I almost rolled through this stop sign uh, right here at, you know, on the corner. Uh, and, and I don't normally do that, but I wasn't paying attention. But and I thought, no, I better make a complete stop. And why is it that the cop is always to the other side of where you're looking? Have you noticed that? You never, see, he's never. But I came to a complete stop, and, and the officer was over there on his new BMW bike. It was really cool, and I waved to him, you know, to acknowledge that I had stopped. And and so I was happy that I came to a complete stop. Had I not, he would have uh, lit me up and written me up, and. I could have argued all day that I have kept several laws today. <laughs> Officer, I, I, uh, I uh, was obeying the speed limit. I used my turn signal. I yielded to oncoming traffic. I stopped for a pedestrian. All I did was roll through this one stop sign. It doesn't matter. I could keep all of the other laws and break the one law and still be ticketed. And if I decide to tear up that ticket and not show up, eventually the law will catch up to me and I'll be guilty of other things that are on top of that. And so that's the idea. You can't perfectly keep the law. It doesn't matter how well you keep parts of it or most of it, you're guilty of breaking it. The first century Jews were trusting in their self-righteousness. Jews today still fall short of the resurrection and are trusting in a works self-righteousness. They claim uh, to... Be waiting for their Messiah when we know He's come. All the man made religions of the world fall short of the resurrection. They all claim to be a way to God, their understanding of God, and to some afterlife, but we know that they are a broad way leading to hell. Even within Christianity, many fall short of the resurrection. There are unsaved men, women, and children who attend church regularly. Some of them are leaders in their church. Some of them are the pastor of their church. It's really stunning when you think about it, but um, you know some of these people. Hopefully you're not one of them, but it's possible that people here today believe that they're Christians but have never accepted Christ as their Savior. Over the years, I've ran into many people who've told me their testimony. Hey, I went to church for years. I was a deacon in that church, and then I met Christ at a crusade. The gospel was shared with me. And I want to suggest this morning two things. Number one, if you haven't accepted Christ, do so now. And number two, if you have trusted Christ and are saved, become more aware of people who, though religious, may not be born again. When you meet somebody... You can ask them, hey, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, well, that's good. But I still don't know what that means. 96% of people in the United States claim to be Christians. But I think that's a little bit high, <laughs> don't you? And so you ask, for, hey, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. When did you get saved? You have to ask follow-up question. When did you get saved? I've always been a Christian. Ooh, Boop. Red flag. Now, that's possible. I have to be reminded sometimes that there are people who've been raised in a Christian home. Your children have come to know Christ at a very young age. They can't really remember when they got saved. Maybe it was when they were five or six years old and they don't have a memory, but they're genuinely saved. And so you might have to ask another follow-up question. Well, uh, what are you trusting in to get into heaven? And you'd be surprised how many people will say things like, well, I'm a generally good person. I do more good than bad. I'm, I'm, an, I'm okay. I think God will accept me. And now you're on. Now, now, now you know you're dealing with a person who doesn't understand that they're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ, having risen from the dead, and that they need him to be their Savior. Back in the day when I was uh, still working at the title company, I went to a Christian businessman's lunch. You know, I was a Christian already, had been for several years, and went to the luncheon, left my card. Well, when you leave your card, they send two guys to come and visit you. Uh, It's a follow-up. It's an evangelistic outreach, and it's a follow-up. And so these guys call, hey, can we come? I thought, hey, this would be a great time for fellowship in the middle of my day. So these guys come, and we start talking, and they, they ask me if I was a Christian. Yeah, a few more conversations, and then, you know, how did you become a Christian? So I kind of gave them a general idea. Can you describe that again? And they kept asking me over and over again how I knew I was a Christian, when I became a Christian, what was I trusting in I was starting to become really annoyed. In fact, I got angry. They just wouldn't believe me that I was a Christian. And so I gave them my entire testimony. I said, okay, you know, to myself, I said, all right, it's on now. I'll just, you know, you want to, it's your dime. I'll tell you the whole thing. And so I went through my entire testimony. It's a good testimony, radical testimony, you know. Little ayahuasca, you know, there somewhere in the background. You know, I brought it all in, you know, and I was just, I blew their minds, I thought. So they're getting ready to leave and we're shaking hands and they reach into their pocket. Read this when you have a chance. It's the four spiritual laws. And call us if you have any questions. And I mean, you know, I, uh, then I started, thinking, maybe I'm not a Christian because I want to kill these guys. You know, they just <laughs> won't believe me. And then they left and I realized, you know, that was actually kind of cool. They were really concerned. Did I know the plan of salvation? Did I know what I was talking about? Had I personally trusted Jesus Christ? I believe that there are people in our church who are not yet saved. Some of you know you're here and you're not saved, but others might think they're saved. And so, just as a regular exercise, when you meet people for the first time, ask them to give their testimony. If somebody asks you to give your testimony, aren't you excited? Don't you? Hey, this is a great opportunity. I love to talk about how Jesus saved me and my marriage and all those kinds of things. And so another person who doesn't want to do that, you know, you have to be careful. Not everybody knows the right language and they're at different places, but isn't it better to be sure? There are a lot of people who have stopped short of a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the Lord will have to say to them in that day, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so it's on us to at least ask. Now, you're also going to encounter many people who make no claim to any righteousness gained from religion, and that brings us to verses 22 through 27. Tell the unrighteous people you encounter along the way that they've stopped short of righteousness. Felix was a rat. He was known for his cruelty. He was notoriously immoral on all levels. Drusilla was a daughter of Herod Agrippa I. He was the murderer of John the Baptist. Interesting home life. She had been married off to a Syrian prince, but at the age of only 16, she left that husband to become the third wife of Felix. Felix and Drusilla were given a great, rare opportunity by God to turn their lives around. They had unlimited access to the apostle Paul for nearly two years. Let's see how they responded. Verse 22, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Felix's decision was politically motivated. He knew Paul was innocent, but he was charged with keeping the peace among the Jews, so he kept Paul in custody. Paul would remain under house arrest for the next two years of his life. Was it fair? As you're fond, I hope, of telling your children, life's not fair. Paul understood that life was not fair and instead saw this as God's providence. He made the most of it. Verse 24, after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, "'Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you.'" Now, Paul didn't discuss the way with them on any philosophical level. He presented it as something very personal. We need to remember that biblical Christianity is Christ. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead and therefore is alive. Paul reasoned to them about righteousness. We might define righteousness in a simple way by saying that it is what it takes to stand before God and therefore enter into heaven. What it takes, as I alluded to before, is absolute perfection. Thus, we all fall short. We are all sinners. We must be given righteousness. It can never be earned, we must be declared righteous somehow by God. How is that possible? The Bible says that Jesus Christ came as a man to take upon himself our sin, but he was also God so he could give to us his perfect righteousness. It's literally an exchange. and it's, In the Bible, it's put in that terminology like a banking transaction. The sin that was in your account is put into Jesus' account. The righteousness that was in his account is put into your account. So when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are declared righteous. Then Paul reasoned to them about self-control. They didn't have any. And that was precisely his point. Unless and until you are saved, it is impossible to live godly lives. You can have a measure of self-control and most people in society do, although we're seeing people more and more not exert their self-control, but it's impossible to really live in a way that pleases God. But when you accept Christ and you receive the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, you're enabled and empowered to live life as God intended it to its fullest. That's the offer. Then it's up to you to decide sometime before the judgment to come. One day you will want to get into heaven. If you have rejected the free gift of salvation in Jesus, you must and will be rejected from entering heaven. Felix and we would suppose Drusilla felt something stirring in their hearts, but for many reasons they stopped short of God's righteousness. It's summarized by this saying, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Convenient can mean at the proper time or at the right time in my life. A lot of people really do use this excuse, even though they might not use the words. They put off thinking about God until later, and there's always a reason for it that, in their mind, supersedes God. For some people, quite honestly, it's because they're having fun or what they consider to be fun. They've got ayahuasca, alcohol, many relationships, whatever it is that they're into, and they think, hey, somewhere in the back of my mind, I kind of think that if I become a Christian, I won't be able to do these really super fun things. And so I, I, let me, you know, sow my wild oats and get all of that out of my system, become an old man or an old woman, and then I'll think about God once I've had my fun. Others want to establish their career. And they think, well, I really don't have time for God. When would I, you know, I can't really go to church. Uh, I, I can't commit any time because I'm busy building this. And after all, it's for my family. And, you know, it's all for good things. And so later when I have a more convenient time after I retire, well, I really can't do it when I retire because I worked so hard all those years. Now I just want to travel. And I put off traveling. And so maybe after, you know, maybe when I'm on my deathbed, a chaplain will come in the hospital and say, you're going to die in five minutes. Do you want to accept Christ? Now, graciously, you can. Isn't that the wonderful thing about grace? You can accept Christ at the last possible instant. But you know what? Do you know when that is? I don't know when that is. Very few people have that kind of uh, real awareness. You could die at any time. Now, I don't want to be morbid about this. You know, I don't want to be one of those hellfire and brimstone, but I have a real sense in my life, especially when I'm driving, that I could die at any moment. I have kind of a weird spidey sense about <laughs> things that are going to fly off of cars and hit my car, and uh, my wife will tell you, it, it's almost eerie, uh, and over the years, I can name dozens of times when th- thing, and, and I always see it, I always see it. Uh, two weeks ago or about a month ago, we're driving down Highway 43 right here. Car pulls out somewhere near Corcoran, right around that sign that says, don't pick up hitchhikers. <laughs> I love that, by the way. That's... <laughs> and, uh, and, and this truck pulls out. It's a little mini truck, and it's got a, a mattress semi-tied down on the back. Now, what is with people and their mattresses? How many mattresses line the side of the freeway? And uh, so this little truck, and it's tied down just with a rope, in the center, and so as he builds up speed, you know, the thing starts doing the mattress, you know, fold. And I tell Pam, I said, this is a dangerous situation. That mattress is gonna fly off. And she goes, would you stop it, please? You're gonna make it happen. And, but sure enough, sure enough, it, it you know, and, and it always happens the same way it kind of hovers. It's like a spacecraft. And then it shoots back right at you. Luckily, my lightning-fast reflexes were enough to save us. Uh, This Wednesday, coming back the 99, uh, north of Bakersfield, I'm just minding my own business in the number two lane, and this blue Ford Taurus shoots by me, going about 75 miles an hour, and I look over, and I think to myself, you know, the passenger, the driver's side rear tire looks awfully deflated. And is that smoke, or is it exhaust? And I thought, I'm just about to tell Pam, I thought, you know, I better not. And a few seconds later, that tire exploded. You had a flat. You ever had a tire just explode in front of you? I mean, it's just, it's, it's a eerie, fantastic, surreal, ayahuasca kind of experience. You know? <laughs> and so, oh, this tire, I mean, it exploded a million pieces, and it's just like in slow motion raining down all around me, you know, and I'm like trying to... Pam ve- goes... How come you didn't see that coming? I said, well, honey, you won't believe me, but I did. And uh, then as we're talking, there's this huge tire now in front of me because a trailer had blown its tire. And I thought, man, uh, we're going to die. You know, we're never going to make it back. And, And that's just how fast it happens. Now, we're having a lot of fun with that, but that's how fast it happens. I mean, you always read about these accidents. No one plans to get into an accident, but do you know how incredibly dangerous it is to drive? You know, I get afraid going on an airplane, you should get afraid of even being near your car. I mean, automobile accidents are 100 times more likely to occur than a plane crash, albeit a plane crash is pretty terrifying. But, uh, you know, I mean, cars are coming out of nowhere, and you're just, you know, it's terrible. You could die today, and you know it. When is it time to receive Jesus Christ? Well, 2 Corinthians 6 says, now is the acceptable time Today is the day of salvation. Why put it off? Oh, I want to establish my business. Okay. Or do you want to go to heaven? Well, my business is pretty important to me. Wow. I want to have some, what I consider fun. Well, can I show you some people who've had that kind of fun? Can I show you what they look like? Can I show you where they end up? Can I show you the ruin of their lives? Can I, can you listen to them talk about what they wish their lives really were? Instead of the fun that they had, sure, sin is pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. But you become a slave to it, and it begins to control you and overwhelm you. And so these are serious issues. When is it convenient? Right now. Verse 26 Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Bribery was a way of life, it was expected, it still is in many cultures. Even if he had money, Paul would not have stooped to it to gain his release. We need to think through some of the customs that our society would wink at that are really ungodly and should not be practiced by believers in Jesus Christ. I don't know if it's encouraging, but here's a guy, Felix, who was witnessed to by the great apostle Paul for about two years, and at least during that time, never got saved. Now, we should be sad about that, of course, but isn't that kind of encouraging? You know somebody that you've been praying for, for years, sharing with, or looking for an opportunity to share with, and you think, man, that person's never going to get saved. In fact, they're getting worse. And you start to think there's something wrong with you. You don't know enough of the Bible. You're not filled with the Spirit. There's some kind of a problem. Hey, again, not that we glory in it, but if you can listen to the Apostle Paul, who not only is sharing the Word of God but is doing it in a very personal way, is looking at you're the governor of Caesarea, and he's saying you're an unrighteous person that's on his way to hell, and you can keep putting it off and not get saved. There's, there's, a, there's a sense in which we remember it's not about us who gets saved. We're just there to give testimony. We're just the witness. They make the decision. Verse 27, but after two years, Portius Festus, Succeeded Felix. Where do they come up with these names? And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Here's what happened according to the historians. At some point in his reign, a riot broke out between the Romans and the Jews. Felix overreacted and showed extreme cruelty towards the Jews. The resulting outcry by Jewish leaders forced his recall to Rome. To try to soften uh, their hatred for him, Felix left Paul in custody. Unrighteous people are not necessarily as evil as Felix and Drusilla, but they do need to be told that there is a judgment coming. Their lack of self-control will prove they didn't know God, even though he offered to declare them righteous because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on their behalf. Let's take a final look at Paul. A group of accusers from Jerusalem had come against him. We might wonder why a group of defenders from Jerusalem did not come for him. After all, the events that landed him under house arrest were set in motion by well-meaning Christians who urged him to go to the temple and pay a vow in the first place. Why did none of them come and stand with him? Well, we can't be certain. We don't want to read anything into the text. We know that none of them did come and stand with him, and we can be certain of this one thing. Jesus stood with him and that it was sufficient for Paul. When your life is not fair and people are against you and no one stands with you, you can look to the Lord because he has promised to never, ever leave you or forsake you. Two years under house arrest seems a bummer, but it was really no matter to Paul. If he was a prisoner, he was the Lord's prisoner. In other words, he knew that not just that the Lord was calling him to be there and to be a prisoner, but that the Lord was with him. And this, this withness, this presence of the Lord, it's, it's really the key, the secret of the Christian life. Jesus is alive and he is in a personal relationship with you. And if he loves you with this everlasting love and you respond in love, does it really matter where you are or what's happening in your life or how long something takes. Put it on a human level. Back in the Old Testament, Jacob falls in love with Rachel, madly in love. What's the dowry? What do I have to do to marry your daughter, Laban? You have to work for me for seven years. Wow, that's it? Work for seven years and I can marry her? Let's go, when does it start? Seven years go by. Has a little bit too much ayahuasca on his wedding night. Ends up in a tent with Leah, not Rachel. He's understandably upset. Laban says, oh, I forgot to tell you. The older sister has to get married first. Then you can have the younger. What do I have to do? Work for me for another seven years. All right, let's go. And somewhere in the narrative it says that it seemed like no time at all. Why? Because he was in love. He would have worked 21 years because of the love that he had for Rachel. And this is the kind of love that is described in the Bible that Jesus has for us and that we can have for him. A love that makes a lifetime of suffering seem like a short thing. Because why? Because in the end, what are you going to end up with? You're going to end up with the real presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. That's why Paul could say, our light affliction is but for a moment but it works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory not only is it light no matter how heavy it is not only is it short but it even works for us to draw us closer to Jesus Christ it is that kind of romance that we need to recapture in our relationship with the Lord that will rise help us to rise above the things that discourage us, the things that distress us, the problems that we face, the times when our life is just not fair. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things and appreciate the simplicity of them. We thank you for everything Paul went through that you've chosen to share with us because it helps us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you, to know your love for us. We thank you for his model and his example. And Lord, today I pray that Um, each of us would take one thing, at least from our time in the Word and our time worshiping you, and see it applied in our life. Not necessarily apply it ourselves, which I, I guess is one way of looking at it, but that you would apply it in our lives, that you would put us in situations that apply it by your providence and grace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand. The guys are up here to pray with you. It could be today that you're here and you're not sure you're a Christian you've been listening to what's said and you think, wow, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'd say if somebody asked me to give my testimony. I'd, it'd be a blank. Come forward and let them pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Anything else you need prayer for, they'd be happy to do that. Um, Chilaquilas? man, I, I just, I've been waiting all morning because I knew I couldn't preach if I ate one. Uh, They're just delicious. So if you have time, stop in the cafe and grab that and just have some fellowship with uh, folks. This Wednesday, the cafe night at Ignite, 7 o'clock. Be a lot of fun, even if you don't normally come out on Wednesday night uh, to that meeting. Good time, time of fun. Bring your young adults, uh, high school, junior high. uh, Have them bring their friends, because it's a night of of music. And and, uh, it'd it'd just be a lot of fun around worship and the word and we'll have a good time fellowshipping one with another. Nothing else happens on Wednesday nights, right? I mean, I think Lost is still on Wednesdays, but nothing is going to happen on Lost. You already know that, those of you who are fans of Lost. It's been on for, what, three or four years, and nothing has happened yet. So nothing's ever going to happen on Lost. So come on out where something is going to happen, and that's at Ignite. May God bless you. Amen.